Let's all take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. You know, as we come to the closing thoughts that Paul shares here in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, we find Paul giving Timothy some advice. Really, that's what we find throughout the whole book. As we have seen, Timothy was being mentored by the Apostle Paul. Paul was showing him the ropes of ministry. And because he couldn't be there in person, he sent a letter to talk about some of the issues that were going on at the church of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring at this time. And what he wanted to do was reignite the fire that Timothy had for the ministry that God had called him to. You know, it's easy to allow circumstances, sometimes good ones, sometimes bad ones, to erode the fire that we have for ministry. But sometimes there are situations where we have to do something that's utterly unpleasant. We look at it and we say, you know, this is against everything that is in me, as far as my temperament and my personality. So I don't want to do this. And we shrink away. What Paul was doing for Timothy in this text was reminding him, you're called to be the pastor, the leader there in Ephesus. You fulfill your responsibility. You follow the calling. You fight the good fight. And what we want to see this morning are Paul's words to Timothy, but we don't want this just to be a history lesson, do we? We want this to be something that we can take and use for ourselves, something that we can understand and apply to our own lives and our own service to God. So as you read these words that are written to Timothy, insert your name for Timothy. And understand that God is speaking to you, that all of us who follow Jesus Christ have a calling to service, and we don't want to shrink away from that calling. We don't want it to take the back burner when God wants us to be on the front burner. Now, I want you to notice as we come to this text, Timothy is addressed by Paul, and he says this, Timothy, my son... I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Now, let's look at this and let's understand what he's saying. What Paul is calling on Timothy to do is to remember something. To remember to keep fighting the good fight. You see, Timothy had been selected by God for a very important calling, a very important responsibility. And as we look at this text, as Paul is addressing this, he's giving Timothy instruction about that calling. Part of Paul's responsibility as a leader was to see to it that Timothy fulfilled what God wanted him to do. 
Part of his responsibility was to make sure that Timothy kept the perspective that he wasn't doing his ministry because Paul had assigned it to him, because the church at Ephesus had welcomed him. He was doing this ministry because God had called him to do it. And that's something I think we all need to understand about ministry, about serving God. When you serve God as a Sunday school teacher, you ought to be doing it because God has called you to that ministry. If it's an Awana leader, you're doing it because God has called you to that ministry. If it's an elder or trustee, God has called you to that ministry. Small group leader, that's a special assignment by God. God wants us to understand that we have a responsibility that no one else can fulfill because it's one that's uniquely suited to each one of us. We need to discover that, and then we need to pursue it. Now, for Timothy, the calling that he had received from God was very evident. Look at what it says here in this 18th verse. It goes on to say, I give you this instruction, in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. You see, Timothy knew what his calling was because very early in his ministry, within the early church, there were prophets who spoke to Timothy about the specific area of ministry that he would perform. Now, some prophecy is foretelling in the sense that it looks into the future. Some prophecy is forthtelling in that it speaks a message from God. And in Timothy's case, perhaps it was both. Because the prophets were speaking of what he would do, but they were also speaking forth, God is calling you to service and to ministry. And it was confirming that in Timothy's heart. Now, why did Timothy need to hear such a sure word about what he was to do? As we're going to continue through both of Paul's letters to Timothy, we're going to find that Timothy had a struggle, and that struggle was fear. He had timidity that gripped him and a confidence that was shaken because of that timidity. Any of you ever suffer with timidity and fear because you're doing something that's outside your comfort zone? You're looking at it and saying, God, are you sure? Am I the person that you want to do this? I mean, come on. When God calls us to a ministry, He equips us for that ministry. Timothy needed to be reassured of that. He needed to understand that God was calling him to this specific ministry, and God confirmed it to Timothy's heart through the work of these prophets. So what Paul is saying in this text, he's saying, I'm reminding you of your call. I'm reminding you of the circumstances that surrounded your going into this ministry, this service. Now, while all of us don't receive a prophetic utterance about what our ministry will be, like Timothy... We do receive sure calls to service. We do have God place on our heart a burden for something. Just this year, I experienced this in a very profound way. I never thought at almost 55, I'd never been on a missions trip, that I would go out of the country ever. Just wasn't on the table. This year, two trips, India and Africa. 
And I sensed the leading of the Lord in each one. And I responded to it. Was it outside my comfort zone? You better believe it. Well, Lord, how do I come up with the money? Well, Lord, I don't speak their language. Well, Lord, I just don't know that I feel comfortable. I I don't want to sit on a jet for, you know, 18 hours, 19 hours. I mean, come on. I can hardly stand a two- or three-hour trek across the country. All of those things came in. All of those fears. What if I go there and I offend people? But following through, I have found it to be an enriching experience. And God has stretched me and grown me in a way that I couldn't have were it not for responding to that. God wants us to respond to the things that he calls us to. Because here's the thing. God calls all of us to some kind of service. Paul wrote this in Ephesians where it says, we are God's workmanship. And I want you to look at this. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And look what it says about the good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Your ministry isn't an accident. Your service isn't brought about by happenstance. The things that you do in service to God are ordained of God. And we need to see that. We need to get a vision for that. I'm not an accidental servant. I am here by God's appointment to do what God has appointed me to do. That's the perspective that we need to have going in to service to our God. And then we need to act on it. We need to consistently obey. I want you to look at what Paul says next in this text. And what he's talking about is a consistency in obedience. We commit to our calling, first of all. We remember that God has appointed us to an area of service. But then there has to be a stick to a consistency in what we do. I want you to look at that 18th verse again. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, in keeping with the prophecies made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. By following what God had asked him to do, Timothy would be fighting the good fight. Now, what had God asked him to do? Go to the first part of this first chapter, and you'll see what God had called him to do. God had called him in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 to command certain men not to teach false doctrine. Then, a little bit later in verse 5, he said, The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is what God had called him to do. To live lovingly, but to hold the feet to the fire of those who were teaching false doctrine. Now, holding someone with a strong personality who's teaching something that doesn't agree with God's word can be challenging. We might want to kind of shirk it if we have a nature that kind of goes away from conflict. I can understand, Timothy, because I'm one of those people. I hate conflict. Man, when there's conflict, my my palms sweat. My voice trembles. 
I can feel my jaw start to twitch. I don't know if it's visible or not, but I can sure feel it. And I get a golf ball in my throat. I hate conflict. But you know what? God calls you to ministry. And sometimes you're thrust in the midst of it. Where you have to take a stand on God's word. Where you have to approach somebody in love. But they're hurting the church body. And you have to talk to them. That's tough. What God is saying here through the Apostle Paul to Timothy and ultimately to us is hang in there. Do what God has called you to do. Continue to follow what God calls you to do and tells you to do. And in so doing, you know what you're doing? You're fighting the good fight. Now, why would the Word of God use an illustration like fighting to illustrate the Christian life? Because it's accurate. And here's the thing. Fighting the good fight isn't a one-shot deal. It's not like you have one scrap and you're done. Fighting the good fight is a continual work. It's a war with many battles. And as believers, we need to understand that. We need to keep fighting the good fight. What Paul is using here is a military term to describe it, a military metaphor. And it's picturing for us the Christian life. It's a series of battles. The Apostle Paul looked back on his own life and he described it this way in his second letter to Timothy. Many believe this was written just before Paul went to execution. And he said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That should be the goal of every believer. That we could look back on our life and say, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. God should have that as a goal for us. And we should have that fixed firmly in our hearts. God wants us to be people who fight the good fight. But in fighting the good fight, how do we do it? How do we remain consistent? How do we as believers continue when we feel like we're getting tired? Endurance is the key. Again, in Paul's second letter, he writes this. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes fighting the good fight is a gut check. It's time for us to just look and say, how committed am I to serving God? How serious am I about staying the course? Endurance can only be built through resistance. So you know what it requires, fighting the good fight? To fight the good fight. To stand for God's truth. To resist compromising, giving in, turning away, abandoning the fight. Staying the course, enduring. That's what God wants us to do. But then look at the fourth verse. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs... He wants to please his commanding officer. Fighting the good fight also means that we are directing our thoughts and our energies toward the things of God. We're not getting distracted by the things around us. We're asking ourselves before we involve ourselves in things outside the faith, 
Will this contribute to the building of my faith? Now, this is one that kind of sticks and hurts. Because more and more in churches today, we find people who let the spiritual take the back burner to the temporal. We will see to all of the luxuries, all of the fun, all of the accoutrements of this life around us. But then we let spiritual things take the back burner. We're not fighting the good fight. We're getting involved in civilian affairs. And we're not asking ourselves first, will this please my commanding officer, God? Fighting the good fight means we have our priorities in order. We understand what is most important. And we judge what we do by that truth. God wants us to fight the good fight in this way. And then we can't talk about fighting the good fight without talking about the spiritual battle. We don't just fight against flesh and blood, against temptations that are of the flesh. There's a spiritual battle that that believers face. And Paul brings this out so clearly in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God is talking about a spiritual battle that we face. Have you ever been working in a ministry? I mean serving God and obstacle after obstacle and discouragement after discouragement presents itself. And it's like breaking through walls to reach the objective. Sometimes there are spiritual obstacles in our way that challenge us. And endurance requires us to stay the course in the power of God. And sometimes endurance just brings us to the place to where we say, all I can do is stand firm. That's what fighting the good fight is. And that's what God wants us to do. So we fight the good fight, but how do we fight the good fight? I want you to look at what Paul says next in this text. The Scripture tells us in verse 19, holding on to faith and a good conscience. The keys to fighting the good fight are maintaining faith, that is, holding on to it, and good conscience. Now, I like the way some of the other translations rendered this. For instance, the New American Standard says keeping faith and a good conscience. And then the Holman translation, having faith and a good conscience. So what it means is this. We, first of all, hold on to faith. Now, what does the Scripture mean when it says keeping or holding on to faith? Faith is trusting God. It's taking Him at His word. When we face those obstacles and those difficulties... Rather than cashing in and throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done, we trust God and His promises. When it looks humanly impossible, we see it as possible by God. We trust Him. Now, a lot of people will look and say, you're so naive. I mean, faith just doesn't make sense. And I say, duh, 
Faith doesn't always make sense. You see, if we can look at everything and say, hey, from a human standpoint, I can see how all of this works out. You do this, 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 and this, and obviously it brings about this. And, and what do we find? The human model doesn't work. No matter how we plan, no matter how we look at things, there are eventually things that come in that are unanticipated, and they knock us right off of our plan. Faith has to be involved. We have to get leading from God. We have to understand that God is the one who plans. And then we depend on God to see us through. Trusting God in your work. Trusting God to make your ministry succeed. That's the key. And so Paul is saying when you fight the good fight, you're not going to fight the good fight unless you have faith. Don't trust in all of the models that you'll read in books, you know, five steps to spirituality. They can have some good ideas and things like that, but ultimately it means believing God's Word, trusting what God says. Look at the other element in fighting the good fight, keeping a good conscience. Now, what is our conscience? The conscience is that awareness that God has placed in all of us about right and wrong. Paul said this in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 15. Since they know, or excuse me, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. The idea of a good conscience, or a conscience in general, is the idea that I have an awareness of what's right and what's wrong. A good conscience or a clear conscience, is listening to that voice that God has placed in us that tells us we're doing right or we're doing wrong. But here's what we need to remember. As we seek to do right or wrong, as we'll see in a few moments, as we respond to that conscience, we'll find that we will either grow in our ability to fight the good fight or we'll shipwreck our faith and not have a fight at all. God wants us to understand that it's important for us to keep that clear conscience, to keep that faith in fighting the good fight. And then he moves on and we start to recognize the danger of rejecting faith in a good conscience. When we look at the 19th verse, immediately after Paul says, holding on to faith and a good conscience, he gives this warning. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Now that word that the NIV translates as reject, in the original language, it's a word that means to cast off. And so the idea is some people no longer hold on to their faith. That is, trusting what God has said in His Word. And they set it aside. God does not want us to be people who cast off the faith. He wants us to be people who hold on to it. And if we cast off our faith, we cast off our reference for life. 
If I'm no longer trusting the Word of God, what reference for life do I have? Nothing. Whatever feels good in the moment. Keeping the faith is trusting God's Word on a practical, moment-by-moment basis. This is what God has for me. He said it in my Word, in, in His Word, and I will follow it. I will do what God says. That's holding on to the faith. Some cast that aside. And they live as they want to live. God doesn't want us to be one of those people. What about casting off the good conscience? To cast off the good conscience means we stop listening to our conscience about what is right and what is wrong. We've all done that. We've all started to do something and hear that voice inside that says, "Uh uh-uh, don't go there. And from time to time, we've all gone ahead and done it anyway. Now, here's what we need to understand about the conscience. Do that enough times. Ignore that conscience enough times, and you become callous to it. Each time, it becomes progressively easier to say no to the conscience. Each time, we give in to what we know to be wrong or refuse to do what is right, It's going to be easier the next time. And the Word of God warns us about this. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be looking into this text a little bit later, it says this, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now here we see the relationship between faith and conscience once again. And he says this, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Now look, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What happens when you have skin that is seared with a hot iron? You have scar tissue form. And that scar tissue is less sensitive than the surrounding tissue. That's what can happen with our conscience. Sear it, and it becomes less sensitive to God's Word, our faith, to the Holy Spirit. God does not want us to have a seared conscience. Fighting the good fight means I don't pass on what my conscience tells me. My conscience, guided by the Word of God, will be what I listen to, not what I reject. And then look at Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. You can corrupt your conscience. You can allow your conscience to become defiled, harmed, less sensitive. God does not want us to be people who have these harmed, seared, corrupted consciences. And isn't it interesting that relationship between faith and a good conscience? If you turn away from God's teaching, you won't have a guide for your conscience. You see, I believe the Holy Spirit takes God's truth and applies it to our conscience. 
And he works with our conscience to guide us in the direction that we should go, whether it's right or it's wrong. I know this to be true because I've experienced it. Have you ever started to do something and a passage of Scripture pops into your head and says, Hey, what are you doing? I believe that's the Holy Spirit working with our conscience, giving us direction. Have you ever been talking to somebody and a passage for the gospel pops into your head? And you say, man, I, I should share my faith with this person. And you fight it and you deny it for a little bit. And then you respond. Again, God working with our conscience. The work of the Holy Spirit and our conscience to produce godly results. Fighting the good fight means, okay, I will listen. I will do what the conscience leads me to do. And what we want to avoid is a callousness toward God that shipwrecks our faith. I want you to look at verse 20. When Paul speaks of shipwrecking one's faith at the end of the 19th verse, what does he mean? We might say that person's made a train wreck of their faith. The idea is our faith becomes impotent. Our faith becomes something that can't produce. Try and load a shipwrecked ship and move people or goods on the shipwrecked ship. It no longer does what it's supposed to do. And that's a picture of what happens to our faith. It no longer does what it's supposed to do in our lives. It's great harm. The examples that are given here in this text are of Alexander and Hymenaeus. And let's look at them. Let's look at Hymenaeus first. The Scripture says among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Both Hymenaeus and Alexander were two individuals that were in the church at Ephesus. And apparently their sin was blasphemy. Now what does it mean to blaspheme? Blaspheming is speaking contemptibly. In other words, saying that God is worthless or something that God has said is worthless. It's also speaking of that or in that way of other people. We know that it's referencing God because we're given a hint about Hymenaeus in another passage where it's mentioned that he taught that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, what many Bible scholars believe is this, that Hymenaeus was mixing the teaching of God's Word with something that was called Gnostic philosophy. Gnostic philosophy was basically a belief that the flesh, the body, can never become spiritually cleansed, that it's always defiled, it's always evil. And so, therefore, they rejected the idea of a physical, bodily resurrection. So, when Hymenaeus was teaching that the resurrection had already taken place, what he was doing was taking what God says is literal, a physical resurrection of the body, and he was saying, no, it doesn't really mean that it's a physical resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. And the moment that we received Christ, we all became spiritually resurrected. That was his idea. What we need to understand is this. When we start trying to get cute with God's Word, 
twist it, distort it, to try and make it somehow fit a current philosophy or system of thought. We have done damage to our faith and the faith of others. We should never take current thought and teaching and use that as a lens through which we view the Word of God. In fact, we should do the opposite. We should look at the worldviews that are around us and judge them in light of God's Word. But some people get that mixed up. They get it backwards, and that's what Hymenaeus did. He got it completely backwards, and as a result, had shipwrecked his faith. Then we find Alexander. Alexander is mentioned probably in the second letter where it says this, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too, and he's speaking to Timothy, should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Alexander was one who's, now think about this, recorded in the eternal word of God as a person who harmed the work and the ministry of the Lord. How would you like that? Word of God never passes away. To be recorded in God's word as one who frustrated the work of God, harmed God's ministry, that's Alexander. And these were actual case studies that Timothy would have understood that he would have known exactly who Paul was talking about. And these were people with whom Timothy had to contend in his church. So what's the solution? How is the church body to deal with people who cast off the faith and who cast off good conscience? I want you to look at the last part of this passage. And we need to understand that this is a very serious part of the passage because it says that Paul considered these men to be within the domain of Satan. What he's talking about are false teachers who had crept into the church. And look at how Paul says they are to be considered. Last part of the 20th verse, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now what does the Word of God say about how we're to handle false teachers. If someone abandons the true gospel, if someone abandons the truth of God's Word, we are not to give them the opportunity to spread that teaching within the church. As a matter of fact, what we find in Galatians is this warning. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Here's the idea. Start a group of false teachers in a healthy church body. And leaven, which represents sin, spreads throughout the whole church. If we want to guard against false teaching, you take the leaven out as soon as it's there and you cut it off. You remove them from the church fellowship. I want you to look at another illustration. 2 Timothy 2. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching, now look at verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. What do you do with gangrene? Cut it off. You take it away. So what the Word of God is saying here is you think about the church body whether what is being said will be harmful to the church body. And you do not allow the false teachings to persist. Now, when Paul says that he handed these men over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme, what does he mean? What we need to understand is, and let's look first at 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. I think that's in your outlines. Each week you get an outline that has the scriptures. I somehow missed that when I made my slides. It's right in the bulletin, but 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 talks about handing a person over to Satan as a matter of church discipline. In the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man who was living immorally with his stepmother. The church just looked right past it, ignored it. And basically the teaching that he was spreading was morality doesn't matter. Do what you want to do. So Paul said hand this man over to Satan. In other words, take him out from the protection and blessing of the church and put him in the realm of Satan so that he knows what it is to live in that way again. But I want you to look at the purpose of this. So that the sinful nature might be destroyed. Now, literally, that says his flesh might be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What he's saying is, sometimes even believers can get off track. Putting a person into the realm of Satan can sometimes remind that person of what they were saved from. The light goes on, they listen to the spirit, and there's restoration. I've seen church discipline work in this way where people are restored, and that's the first goal of church ministry and church discipline, to see people restored. So what the Word of God is saying for these men who are bringing harmful teachings into the church, first, hand them over to the realm of Satan in hopes that they'll respond. But you know, sometimes handing a person over to the realm of Satan means you're sending them back where they came from. When Judas betrayed our Lord in the upper room in John chapter 13. Remember, Jesus had just told the disciples, one of you will betray me. Their response immediately was, is it me, is it me, is it me? And Jesus whispered to one of the disciples, the person who takes this bread from me is the person who will betray me. And it was Judas And notice it says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus turned and said, what you are about to do, do quickly. So handing him over to Satan was basically allowing him to follow the person that he had followed all along. Whatever the case for Hymenaeus and Alexander... The important thing that Paul is communicating here is don't allow 
a person who confuses and leads people away from God's Word and a good conscience to continue their ministry in the church. You love them. You pray for them. You seek their restoration. But you cannot allow it to continue. You cannot allow false teaching to corrupt others and damage the church body. As a pastor, that's probably one of the most difficult things that I go through. How do I discipline a person in love? But as a pastor, I also recognize it's one of the most necessary things that a church body can go through. And you know what? If it doesn't hurt, then we're not doing it in the right spirit. Let me encourage all of you this morning. God has called you to a specific ministry. Keep fighting the good fight. And in fighting the good fight... Keep the faith. Keep that good conscience. Because there's an interesting relationship between faith and conscience. When we become misdirected in our faith, our conscience will suffer because it doesn't have a reference point. When we become misdirected in our conscience, we will start trying to distort our faith to make it fit what we want to do. The two work together. And to fight the good fight, we have to keep them both strong. That's what we can pray for one another, for the leadership of this church body, that we will keep a good conscience, a strong faith, and that we will serve God according to the calling that He's given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. And we thank You for the reminder that it is to all of us that the Christian life is a fight, that we must fight with endurance, with focus, in a way that honors and pleases you. So may we all do that to your glory and to your purpose in Christ's name. Amen.